0: You know, we're going through this series right now called Last Words. We're in part six because we're talking about the last words Jesus made from the cross. And uh, as we examine that, we've been looking at the last words of some other people throughout history and how important last words are um, and how they stick with us and resonate with us. Um, I mean, I'm sure some of you can think of the last words that certain individuals spoke to you Um, before uh, they went to heaven. I mean, I can think of, like my grandfather, last word he spoke to me on the phone before he died a couple days later, was I love you. And I can think of another guy. Uh, He was a former student who uh, died just a few weeks after I spoke to him. Um, He drowned in a lake. But he he was going to be a minister, and uh, he was delivering his first sermon, and he called me the night before and walked through it with me. And uh, the last thing he ever said to me was, I love you. And that was the first time he ever said it. Um, and uh, then he hung up the phone, and then just a few weeks later, he, he died. Uh, the last words stick with us in a powerful, powerful way. And we're going to look this morning, as we look at Jesus' last words. there was a guy born in 1703 in England. His name was John Wesley. John Wesley was a very bright guy. He was a very smart guy. He was educated at Oxford uh, in England. He was ordained as an Anglican priest uh, when he was 25 years old. And being ordained as an Anglican priest, he was then assigned to uh, pastor the first church in the colony of Georgia. So he traveled from England over to the colonies and he served at a church there in Georgia for a couple of years. And he really had a hard time at that church, a real hard time. Uh, So after two years, he got on a boat, went back to England, and then he began to realize some things. And 10 years after he was ordained as an Anglican priest, this was 1738. Ten years after he was ordained as a priest, he got saved. And uh, he left and started a new ministry where he would go around England and uh, he would share the gospel and he would uh, get Christians to group up into little house churches, little small groups. To, to encourage each other in the faith and develop spiritual disciplines like reading scripture and prayer and encouraging one another. And uh, these little groups were labeled because the things they developed then reading scripture and prayer and, and doing it so many times a day, so many times a week, uh, they called that the methods they would do to grow closer uh, to Christ. And so they were called, because of those methods, they were called Methodists. And so John Wesley established these all over the place. Uh, But in doing that, in teaching as well from Scripture, he led this group of Methodists to to, uh, bring about great reform in England. And to the point of his death, he was called the best loved man in all of England. Uh, they uh, They brought about great prison reform in England in the 1700s, as well as leading the charge for the abolition of slavery in England long before we did it here in America. Uh, and then he's lying on his deathbed. And at this point, he's given away almost all of the money he had. He, he had pretty much nothing because he's just given it all away. Uh, he's lying there on his deathbed. He's surrounded by people. And uh, he says uh, one phrase. He says it, he says it twice. Uh, he says, the best of all things is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. And then he died. And John Wesley, this man who had a profound effect on not just England, not just great revival taking place there, but on the history of the world uh, through bringing people to Christ and showing them things like you do not need to enslave another human being and how that changed England and ultimately changed America uh, by pointing people to Jesus, he brought this about. And as Jesus was dying on the cross, as we look at his seven last statements from the cross, he made seven statements from the cross, and as best we can gather from Scripture, the first three statements he made from the cross, he made at the beginning of his crucifixion. Right at the beginning, he's nailed to the cross, he makes three statements. And then at the very end of his crucifixion, he makes four more statements. Now, what happened in the in-between, we don't really know. He could have said a whole lot of stuff. I mean, John tells us at the end of his gospel uh, that if, if everything Jesus did and said were written down, the world isn't big enough to contain the books that would have to be written to contain it all. Uh, but whether he said a bunch of stuff or he didn't say a lot of stuff, I mean, the way we see Jesus throughout the gospels, I kind of picture him, he did, probably did say some things there um, to the people around him. Uh, but right there at the end of his crucifixion, he made these four statements that we're almost back to back to back to back, and we're going to look at this statement here, the statement, the sixth statement from the cross. This is in John 19, verse 30. John 19, verse 30. Uh, if you're using a Bible on the pew rack there in front of you, it's on page 906. You can flip to there. It'll be on the screens as well. Uh, those Bibles also on the pews, if you do not have a Bible, if you're in the room and you don't have a Bible, take that Bible home. Take it home. Write your name in it right now. It's yours. That's your Bible. Take it home. Uh, we, got, we can replace it on the P. rack with some others, but just take that one home. Every, you need a Bible. So John 19, verse 30. John writes, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So it says, when, Jesus gave, when he had received the sour wine, we looked last week, Jesus made the statement, I am thirsty. Uh, and they got, they had a bucket of sour wine there. Um, that the, the soldiers were using, and they took a sponge, shoved it in that bucket, popped it on a hyssop branch, and just held it up to Jesus' mouth. And then after that, some scholars believe Jesus needed the, the liquid in his mouth and throat to be able to say these next two statements he was going to say. This one here, and then the one we're going to look at next week. And he said, it is finished. It is finished. The work to make a salvation available to everyone had finished nothing else needed to be done he was he was dying he was dying it was his death that that bought us salvation and he says it is finished the work for salvation was done so there's nothing else he needed to do to bring about salvation but in the same regard there's nothing else we need to do now for salvation it's finished the period's been put on that statement two thousand years ago You don't have to live live perfectly now to buy your salvation. You can't. You can't. Jesus bought salvation for us with his death and his resurrection. So he says, It is finished. And if we look at this plan that God had, you know, he created humanity, he created a humanity perfect. Then humanity broke God's perfect plan when we sinned. Sin broke the world, sin broke history. And sin forever separated us from God. And so in order to reestablish that relationship with God, God had to to do something to pay for all of the sin. You see, that's the problem, is for every one time we sin, we deserve to die. And I don't know about you guys, but I sure sin a lot more than one time. I mean, more than one time just since I've been awake today, (laughs) a lot more. But, and so God saw that problem and he needed to fix the problem. So he needed somebody's death that was worth more than just one. And every one of our death is just worth one. We we can't die multiple times. I don't know if you knew that or not, but you can't. And so God sent Jesus. But in Jesus dying for our sins, that also illustrates how much greater God is than us. If his one death can pay for the sins of every single person in all of human history and still have some left over. I mean, imagine that for a second. It's hard to really wrap your brain around. But he died, and because Jesus is God, his one death paid for all the sins. So then all we have to do is believe, and that's God's plan for salvation. That's his plan and if we were coming up with a plan for salvation, most likely that would not be the plan we'd come up with. I mean, I don't know how good your plans are, but that's the plan God came up with. And look what God says about his plans in Isaiah 55. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." Did anybody know that God's smarter than you? You should all be saying yes. I mean, lightning's gonna strike you people. I mean, come on. He says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. That he comes up with things we can't because he can see more than we can see. And he's able to see everything at one time and we can't. He's able to work it all together in a way that we can't. And so he says, my ways are higher. My thoughts are higher. But then you ask yourself, okay, that's a general statement. We can apply that to all kinds of stuff. I mean, his thoughts are higher, his ways are higher. But actually, in this passage of Scripture, he tells us specifically what his thoughts and ways being higher refer to in the two verses right before. So jump up, back up to verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And the unrighteous man his thoughts; let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon. And then he says, "For my ways are higher; my thoughts are higher." And so, there's God's plan, God's higher plan, God's higher ways, God's higher thoughts. It's right there. He says, "The wicked to forsake their way; the unrighteous to forsake his thoughts." He's talking about people who have sinned. That's all of us. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So anybody who has many sins, all of us, to be pardoned by God, that is his higher plan. Those are his higher thoughts. That's what he's telling us. Those of us with many sins, all of us, being pardoned by the Lord, that is his greater plan. That plan, though, is interesting. That plan that Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, that plan that was over, it wasn't just God's plan. Jesus dying. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I never really thought about it this way before, but look at this as I was studying this passage. Luke chapter 23, or 22, sorry, verse 3. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas planned to have Jesus killed. But not just that, what happened before Judas initiated this plan? Satan entered him. It was Satan's plan to have Jesus killed. But we know, I mean, we see all the way back in Isaiah 55, that was God's plan. Satan, for some reason, did not foresee that Jesus would raise from the dead. He just didn't see it happening. He didn't see that Jesus' death would pay for the sins of the entire world, even though it had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. Satan didn't look that far in advance. He just thought he could kill God's son and it would all be over. If he killed the son of God, then he would win. He would have victory over what God wanted to do. So Judas' plan to betray Jesus to the Jewish leaders leading to his death was ultimately Satan's plan because Satan had already entered Judas. Ju- I mean, you know, this totally has nothing to do with the sermon, but you know, there are some guys in history that ruin a name for everybody else, right? Judas. None of you are going to name your kids Judas. Judas. None of you are going to give your kids a middle name of Hitler. I mean, there's some guys you're just not going to name. that. Well, Judas, you know, there was another disciple named Judas, and they have to distinguish. That's why he says here, Judas called Iscariot. It's not the other Judas, it's the the bad Judas. And so he betrayed Jesus. It was Satan's plan to kill Jesus. Jesus actually tells us a parable, and it's quoted in three of the Gospels, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, Matthew 21, Mark 12, and Luke chapter 20. Of workers on a farm uh, who wanted the farm for themselves, and so they developed this plan to kill the son of the farmer, the son of the owner, sorry, the son of the owner of the farm, they were going to kill him and take over the farm. Well, they ended up killing the son of the owner, but what they didn 't realize in killing the son of the owner, they sealed their own fate and Jesus is telling that parable, and the Jewish leaders assumed they was telling it against them, which in a way he was, but it's also very illustrative of Satan himself. Satan's plan was to kill the son of the owner, Jesus. But in doing that, he sealed his own fate. Because we see in the book of Revelation, Satan goes to hell as a result of his disobedience and actively working against the ways of God. And so that was his plan, to kill the son of the owner, the son of God, but what's so great about God's plan is that God's plan can use the plans of evil people, and he can use them in a way we never saw to accomplish something we never thought possible. He did this in the book of uh, uh, Genesis with Joseph. Genesis fifty twenty. Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant it for good. How many of us have seen that in our lives? Something good has come from something evil, right? So Joseph says that, and that's what, what, what God does with, with Judas's plan, with Satan's plan to have Jesus killed. God was going to bring something good for all of our good. Through that, Romans eight twenty eight. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now that verse there, Paul's writing this, he says, for those who love God, that is those who love God, those who follow God, those who follow God's plan, those who are saved, those who believe in Jesus, for them, all things work together for good. But notice in that verse, it doesn't say all things are good. Because wouldn't you say all things are not good? You ever had something in your life that you would say that is not good? Yes. (laughs) If there's anything you can amen, it's that one. (laughs) All things are not good. But he says all things will work together for good, ultimately. Whether we experience that here in this life or the next one. He says all things work together for for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Not all things are good, but God can do good things even from evil things. The world is not good anymore. You know, when God created the world, but each time he made a creation, he said it is good. Then he created man and said, it is not good until he created woman. And then he said, it is good. And then sin broke all of the goodness. And so any goodness that exists is from God. Any goodness that exists is from God that's in this world. And so he can work out good from whatever may come. And we experience all kinds of things that come our way, that, that are difficult, that are problematic, that are not good. Or as scripture sometimes calls it, uh, afflictions or sufferings. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul writes, we are afflicted in every way. We are I mean, that word means made to suffer in every way, but not crushed, perplexed. But not driven to despair persecuted but not forsaken struck down but not destroyed so we're afflicted in every way we are made to suffer in every way but we are not crushed we are perplexed we are in anxious confusion maybe doubting why something is happening but we're not driven to despair that's hopelessness we're persecuted we're pursued we are hunted down for harassment, but we're not forsaken, we're not abandoned, God is still with us. We're struck down, we're beaten down, we're battle weary, but we're not destroyed, we're not finished off. God's still doing something, he's still working something out. Because jump down to verse 16. So because we're not destroyed, we're not forsaken, we're not in despair, we're not crushed, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, day by day. You ever feel like your outer self is wasting away? Your physical body is, is just being bombarded and beaten down just from, the, from, from age or from the struggle of this life or from anxiety or from worries and you just feel like sometimes, I, I don't know how much more, I've, I've hit my limit. This is as, as, as high as my anxiety level goes. This is as high as my worry goes. I can't take any more pain. I can't take any more struggle. I can't take this anymore. Uh, God, I just need your help here. So our outer self is wasting away, but what Paul says there, he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's not an automatic process, that day by day inner self renewal. That comes from spending time with Jesus. That's what brings the renewal. That's what brings the change. That's what brings the strength for the day. So that even though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self can be renewed, the spiritual self can be renewed day by day if we spend time with Jesus and allow him to do it. And Paul knows about the outer self wasting away. I mean, Paul had friends who had betrayed him. Paul had friends who had died. Paul himself had been beaten insanely with this massive whip that had nails and bits of bone and razor blades in it. He was beaten with that multiple times. 39 lashes with it each time. Paul was stoned to death once, brought back to life and went right back into the city of the people who stoned him. (laughs) Talk about courage. So Paul knows about the outer self hurting. He knows about the body being in pain. He was shipwrecked once, bitten by a deadly snake another time. Paul knew that statement. And so he doesn't say stuff just randomly. He speaks from his own experience. He speaks from the Lord working in him. He says, even though the outer self hurts and the outer self is wasting away, the inner self can be renewed every single day if we invest in it with Jesus. Look at verse 17. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. That's temporary. They don't last. But the things that are unseen are eternal. It's almost comical that he calls it in verse 17 a light momentary affliction. I mean, having heard some of the stuff Paul went through in his life, he calls that stuff a light momentary affliction. When compared, he says there, to eternity. What we go through in this life compared to eternity is is small. It's heavy, and it hurts now, and it does. But think about if you have excruciating pain for 80 years, but then you live forever after the 80 years. Once you get to year 2035, are you going to remember much about the first 80 years? Probably not, especially when you're walking around looking at Jesus every day. I mean, do you remember much from when you were two and three years old? We were watching a movie the other day, and uh, the guy in there made a comment about an, an, something he experienced when he was three years old, and I thought, I do not remember anything from when I was three years old. Like, maybe I skipped that year. Like, I don't remember anything from when I was three. Uh, I mean, just try to, try to think about that in, in terms, maybe think of it in percentages. If you, I mean, eternity is forever. So in 3,000 years, or let's say, let's say you live to your 80. In 8,000 years, you're going to remember something that was, what, 0.01% of your life at that point? It's, it's, it's having a different perspective, which, I don't know about you, is very difficult. It's easy to say in the moment, Jesus, I got a new perspective on eternity, and then we walk out the door and we get a phone call or a text or an email, or the person who's walking beside us makes a comment, and, and everything we had just thought about with Jesus in this room, with green everywhere, changes. Our perspective goes out the door. And all of our focus in that moment is on that thing that was said or that text or that email that we get or the weight that we had before we walked in the room about finances or about stuff at court or about stuff that's coming in the mail this week. It it, 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 it gets placed back on us and it's like we're hunched over again walking back to our cars. And we miss the perspective. Paul walked around every day of his life not knowing if it was his last because everybody in the cities he wanted to go into wanted to kill him. Ultimately, that's what happened. He gets his head cut off by the government because he told too many people about Jesus. That's a hard way to walk around anticipating your death every single day, especially it being a literal thing when the government puts a hit out on you. But he's able to say this, that the eternal weight of glory is beyond all comparison. He was looking at heaven in a different way and honestly, I mean, if, I'll admit to you, I often don't see it from that perspective. Get caught up in the busyness, get caught up in what's before my eyes rather than what's eternal, as he says there, things that are temporary versus things that are eternal. And, and, and we miss the joy we can have now because we have eternal life now. John seventeen three, eternal life is believing in Jesus, so you have that eternal life now. You don't have to wait till you die to get it. You don't have to wait till you step into heaven to get it. You can have it now. The, 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 uh, uh, e- the eternal perspective, the eternal joy, the eternal victory, you can experience it now. But it's all in where your perspective is placed, all in what you, how you view your life. He, he speaks there of that hope for eternity. The spiritual hope of eternity delivers victory when all we feel is defeat. The spiritual hope of eternity delivers victory when all we feel is defeat. And there's some days, honestly, we feel nothing but defeat. Whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's an experience we've been through, it just continues to weigh on us. It's overwhelming grief that is continually there, and it will be for the rest of our life here on earth. It's a wound that is constantly uh, uh, you know, poking at us, some days in more pain than others. But he says, through those verses, that the spiritual hope of eternity can still provide victory when what we feel is defeated. Those are those verses. We're afflicted, suffering in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, we're confused, we're doubting, but we're not hopeless. We're persecuted, we're harassed, we're maliciously sought after, but we're not abandoned and forsaken. We are struck down. We are beaten down, but we're not destroyed. We are not defeated. Putting hope in the eternal finds victory and joy now. We're going to look at Romans chapter 8. Paul continues this thought that he spoke of there in 2 Corinthians, and he takes it in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, and he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, that's trouble, or distress, or persecution, or famine, that's not having enough food, or nakedness, not having clothes or shelter, or danger, or sword. It's interesting, I thought, that he opens the verse with who shall separate us, and then he mentions those things. And if you look at those things, I mean, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, none of those things are a who. They can be caused by a who but really the enemy brings those things. He can bring those things through human beings, absolutely. But those things aren't good things, right? Remember, we talked about that a minute ago. God works all things together for good, even if all things are not good. Well, those things aren't good. I mean, when God created the earth and created everything perfect back in the Garden of Eden, none of those things, well, nakedness, but not that understanding of it, you know, not not being able to uh, uh, care for your own needs, he said none of those things existed in that way. There wasn't persecution in the garden. There wasn't tribulation in the garden or distress or famine or danger or sword. There wasn't that because it wasn't sin. So God didn't design those things in that way. The enemy has taken it along with sin and created this trouble. But what Paul is saying in that verse is none of those things can can separate us from God's love. None of those things can destroy us. None of those things can overtake us and overwhelm us and defeat us. Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sheep to be slaughtered. The idea behind that phrase, sheep to be slaughtered, is, is they... You know, they would sacrifice sheep in the temple, uh, and so sh- when the sheep were born, um, certain sheep, um, they were assigned that purpose from the moment they were born. If they were born and they were a certain way, then, then that's what they were labeled from that point forward. This sheep is going to be slaughtered once it reaches a certain age. And so it carried that until it got to that point, until it got to that age. From the moment it was born, this sheep is going to be slaughtered. This sheep is going to be slaughtered. It's like it wore a label, slaughtered. Slaughtering coming. You ever feel that way? Like you're, you've been assigned the purpose of defeat. And everywhere you turn, somebody's out to get you. And so this is what, in quoting this, this, this verse, I think it's Psalm 44 is where this is from. Uh, Paul is saying, sometimes it feels that way as Christians. It's like, or just existing in the world. That we're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But Paul says, even if that occurs... Verse 37, no, in all these things, the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, swords, sheep to be slaughtered, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That phrase, more than conquerors, literally means to be emphatically and overwhelmingly victorious. That means there's no question you're the winner. There's no question you're the victor Here. You, you overwhelmingly win. It's the idea of, of playing a baseball game. The first inning, you score no points. The other eight innings, your team scores 20 runs each inning. You get to the end of the game, who's going to be the overwhelming victor? The team that scored 160 points. You ever seen a baseball game that scored 160 points? Thankfully, they have run rules in some of these leagues, so <laughs> we never get to that point or they would be there. But... That would be a massive, massively one-sided game. And the way Paul is saying it, even when we're persecuted, even when we're suffering, even when we're afflicted, even when we're, we're, we're what was he saying back in 2 Corinthians, even when we're perplexed, even when we're persecuted, even when we're struck down here in Romans, even when we face tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, sheep to be slaughtered, even in that moment, we're still the overwhelming victors. There's no question about it. The other side thinks They won. They didn't win. Satan thought he won when he killed Jesus. Absolutely not. Satan thought he won. And then Jesus comes busting out of the grave a couple of days later. Saying, who do you think won? Don't be celebrating. It's not over till it's over. In all these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. And he's, he's, this is the book of Romans. He's writing this to Christians in Rome. Christians in Rome who, some of them had already been kicked out of Rome and came back. Some of them would end up dying because they're in Rome, the seat of the Roman government. Where Paul would end up going under lock and key. And he says to them, we're more than conquerors. Whatever they do to it, that doesn't matter. We're more than conquerors because the victory has already been won. It's over. It's over. We have won overwhelmingly, decidedly. Verse 38, he picks up steam here. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he says, even though all that stuff is coming at us, we can't be separated from God's love, so we're winners. If if we have God's love, we have salvation, we have eternity, we have heaven, then, then there's nothing that the world can do to us to break us because we have eternity. We have security. We have salvation. None of that can destroy what God is bringing on. He says earlier in this chapter, same chapter, Romans 8, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He's saying the glory is so much greater of what we're about to experience that the struggle of now won't soon be remembered. Because, as is often said, if you don't know Jesus, this world, with all its suffering, with all its struggles, is as good as it's ever going to get. But for the Christian, this is as bad as it's ever going to get. It's only up from here. So it says the glory that will be revealed to us in heaven, in that experience, will be so great that the struggle here won't even be thought of there as we walk through the streets of gold, experiencing the fullness of God's presence and power. And so we have to understand something, a struggle that I know I have, and I know from talking to you guys, some of you have too. Sometimes, whether we like it or not, we perceive how victorious or how even successful, let's just say a day is, based upon what we feel. Or based upon the experience we have that day. An experience that we have in a given day or a given season can determine in our own minds whether or not that season was victorious, whether or not that season was successful. And Paul is trying to give us a different perspective here. That however you feel, however the, the experience of life is bombarding against you, you're still victorious. It may feel bad. You may feel, as he said there, you may feel defeated. Like, you can't, just, you can't just shake it off. You can't just walk it off. You can't get rid of it. He says, but even if you don't feel it, you're still victorious. Even if you don't feel like it, you're still the winner. Overwhelmingly, you're still the winner. But he told us at the beginning of all this we looked at, it's not from anything you did. It's from everything Jesus did. He's the cleanup hitter. He's the one who won the game and we ride with him. And so our perspective needs to be fixed on him, on what the victory is. Ultimate victory doesn't come from my present experience or really my perspective of my present experience. Ultimate victory was won previously, no matter my experience presently. Ultimate victory is already had, and then it is experienced by us. It's fully realized in the future. In Jesus so my perspective shifts it it changes when I begin to interpret my experience my life from eternal victory rather than interpreting my eternal victory based on how my experience is going so I'm challenging you interpret your experiences from your victory rather than your victory from your experiences the victory you have, how victorious you are, and what you're experiencing in this life, interpret the victory, the success, how, how good things are going based upon what Jesus did rather than what you did or rather than what somebody did to you or rather than what your health is or somebody else's health is, rather than... What you experience in your bank account, rather than what you experience at your job, rather than what you experience walking around in this world, rather than experiencing what you saw on the news, rather than experiencing what you saw on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, rather than allowing those things to define your, your victory and, and how your day goes and how what your experience is now, allow the victory he already won to interpret everything else. Have you ever seen somebody going through the worst thing in the world that this you know, humanity has to offer and still uh, give off joy. It's because that person is interpreting their experience through the lens of the victory already won. So we have to understand something. No matter what the enemy whispers to us, no matter what the world throws at us, no matter how degrading our bodies get or somebody else's gets, we are still victorious Because of Jesus. His victory should be the lens through what we see everything else. Everything else has to be seen through that. Yes, I'm victorious. I didn't make this happen, but it happened. Or maybe we say, yeah, my decisions brought me to this point, but still, I'm victorious, irregardless of that. I'm forgiven, irregardless of that. Victory has already been won. It's overwhelming. He says there in the passage, I'm more than a conqueror. More than a conqueror. Through Him, who loved us, through Jesus, through what he has already done. And so the question for you is, do you know that you're victorious? Do you know it? Do you really know it deep down in your soul, not just in your head, but has it uh, it seeped down into you? But then ask yourself the question, do you often feel very victorious? Do you often feel very victorious as a result of what he's done? Sometimes we say, yeah, I feel pretty successful, but we... Usually we'll say that or think that because of something we ourselves did. But that's not success. That's not victory. Victory comes from Jesus. He brings it. And so then, do you determine your victory depending on your experience? Or will you from now on begin to determine your experience based on your victory? That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I guarantee you it's not. It's going to be hard. It's going to be hard as I'll get out. Because the moment you try to be working towards this perspective, perspective of keeping your eyes on Jesus in light of eternity, the enemy's going to come at you with all kinds of mess. He's going to whisper all kinds of stuff. He's going to bring somebody alongside you that's going to try to change the direction you're wanting to go in Jesus. And in that moment, you have to resolve, you have to make the decision, are you going to follow Jesus or not? Even when it's hard. Even when the wind's blowing and the storm's raging. Even when you don't know if you have tomorrow. Even if something that happened 5, 10, one year ago is, is, is hanging over your head like a cloud and you can't get out from under it. Are you still going to follow Jesus in that moment? In light of eternity. Under his strength and not your own. Because only through his strength do we find victory. And so today, if there's anyone in the room who does not yet have that victory, do you want it today? Do you want to know Jesus today? Then all you have to do is believe. Believe that Jesus is God's son. Believe that he he died for all your sins to be forgiven. The plan that was finished, he has already done it for you. And he rose from the dead so you can live after you die. Will you believe that today? Don't put it off. Don't, don't, Start arguing with God and say, oh, I'll think about it later. I'll do it another time. I'll do it next week. I'll I'll, I'll think about it after lunch, this afternoon. I'll I'll do it some other time, but I'm not going to do it right now. Don't put it off. Those thoughts of putting something off like that, something spiritually important like that, those thoughts of putting it off, those are not from Jesus. Those are from the enemy. If you're scared, that's not from Jesus either. For God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power of love and of self-discipline or a sound mind. And so if God didn't give us a spirit of fear, then that fear, that that, that feeling of being afraid has to come from somebody else. That comes from the enemy. And so if you're afraid of doing something for Jesus, like in a moment, I'm going to pray, and if you made a decision for Jesus and you want to follow Jesus, then I'm going to invite you. That's why they call this section we're about to get into in the service, the invitation, because I'm inviting you to come to Jesus. And you're afraid of walking down these green aisles and talking to me down here, what everybody in the room is going to think. Everybody in the room is going to be celebrating, so don't worry about that mess. Don't be afraid. That is from the enemy trying to keep you from doing what God put in your heart to do. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. As I quote often, Charles Stanley says, Obey the Lord and leave all the consequences to Him. What's going to happen is going to happen. So let's follow Jesus. And let what happens happen. So will you follow him today? Will you embrace that victory today? Will you walk in victory and joy today because of Jesus and how he already won it for you? Will you maybe accept that victory for the very first time today?